and we will begin at verse number 12 in just a moment. 1 Samuel chapter number 2. Again, if you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to follow along using that handout you got when you came in this morning. If that's easier for you, feel free to do that. 1 Samuel chapter number 2. I do want to catch us up a little bit on where we were at last week, if we missed you. And uh, to give you an idea of where we've been and where we're going, we started a new sermon series last week. We called it Backbone. We're studying the life of Samuel. Samuel was the last of the line of judges, the beginning of a new line of prophets. And um, he's going to be a really transitional figure in the book uh, or in the Old Testament passages. We see him going to be the one that's going to anoint David as the future king. Obviously, we know from David's line comes Jesus. He's really instrumental both in... Uh, Saul's life, we'll see, as well as David's life, as he kind of uh, speaks truth to power, and he's able to um, have an air of conviction, even when everyone around him is compromising. We studied last week a little bit what that looks like in a home environment, the home that Samuel was raised in with Elkanah and Hannah, as being a father and a mother who lived and tried to instill in their home uh, conviction and an understanding of what is right. Dad through example, mom through prayer, and... um, we're going to find ourselves in chapter number two. Samuel has been born. Samuel has grown up a little bit, probably around eight, nine, ten years old. He's been dropped back off at the temple. You remember the prayer that Hannah made, the commitment that Hannah made uh, in chapter number one. It says, if you give me a, a man child, right, I'm going to give him back to you. And at this point, Samuel has been born. He's been raised kind of through his uh, toddler, early elementary years, and has been brought back to the temple. And we find him living and serving in the temple and uh, helping out the priest Eli, and doing, uh, basically learning and growing, growing in the word, and uh, 1 Samuel chapter number 2 is we're going to pick up his story. Okay, so in the temple, uh, sorry, not in the temple, the tabernacle, where he's working uh, in Shiloh, and we're going to see how it's going between him, Eli, and Eli's two sons, okay? This narrative, the story of 1 Samuel, kind of walks us through the account of how God worked out his plan through people who, like us, didn't understand what the plan was. How many of you guys think that Christianity would be so much simpler, following God would be so much simpler, if God would just clue us in on all of his plans? Like, if he would tell me why I'm going through this, or why this pain was happening, or why this difficulty was going on, I feel like I could trust him more, right? That's not how it works. The story of 1 Samuel, the story of this passage, is how God works through people who do not understand at all times what God is doing. And that's going to kind of be a running theme living our life in God's word, that we don't understand always what God is doing, but we know he's up to something. Last week was kind of a feel-good account for me. I love Hannah's prayer. We could probably do a whole series just on the prayer of Hannah. This morning will be a little bit less feel-good, okay? Uh, We're going to look at Eli and his sons, and they are not who you would want to be your priest, not who you would want to be your spiritual leader, and we'll see and understand what it looks like to compromise. What we're going to do is we're going to call this, this morning's message, we're, it's called the lies of compromise, okay? And all of us will be tempted to compromise in our lives in different areas. Sometimes it'll be at work, right, where we're tempted to fudge the numbers a little bit, or we're tempted to cut a corner, or we're tempted to uh, take home a few extra staplers, right? We're, we're, we're tempted to compromise, right? We know what is right, but we feel like we can just kind of work a little bit to the right or the left of that and, and still be okay. Sometimes we're tempted to compromise at home. We're tempted to compromise in our marriages. We're tempted to compromise in our, in our morality and the, the life of following after Jesus. And I believe that when we choose to compromise, 
we, there's a good chance we're believing one of the lies we're going to talk through this morning from this passage. So 1 Samuel chapter 2, let's start reading in your Bibles, verse number uh, 11. Let's go back one verse. Elkanah went to Ramah to his house, and the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli the priest. So that's where Samuel is ministering at the tabernacle. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial, and they knew not the Lord. Okay, some of your Bibles might say these were wicked men, right? Sons of Belial just means they weren't servants of God, they were servants of the evil one, okay? They weren't following after the truth of God. The sons of Eli were wicked, they knew not the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seething, with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand, and he struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, all that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. And don't worry, we're going to work through all this, okay? What is going on with meat and forks and cauldrons? We're going to get there, okay? I promise. Verse 15, and before they burnt the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. And if any man said unto him, let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thy soul desires, then he would answer him, no, but thou shalt give it to me now, and if not, I will take it from you by force. Wherefore the sin of the young men, Hophni and Phinehas, was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. But Samuel, there's a good contrast for us, compromise and conviction, but Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child girded about with a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother made for him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, the Lord give thee seed of this woman for the loan which is lent to the Lord. And they went unto their home and the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bare three sons and two daughters. And the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Now Eli was very old and heard that all his sons were doing unto Israel, how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he said unto them, why do you do these things? For I hear of the evil, of your evil dealings by all these people. No, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to sin, to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. The child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and also with men. There came a man of God unto Eli and said unto him, Thus says the Lord, Did I plainly appear into the house of thy, Pharaoh, of thy father when thou were in Egypt of Pharaoh's house? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? To offer upon my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? Did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? Then wherefore do you kick ye at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel and my people? Let's stop there, okay? We're going to go a little bit further, but um, I can see when your eyes start to glaze over. We'll get there, okay? Um, what I want to do is kind of walk through this passage. This is an interesting story, okay? Uh, we've got a, a priest, the high priest named Eli. Eli comes from what's called uh, the tribe of Levi. That's what he's talking about. Did I not choose your father as the one when he came out of Egypt, that he would be my one that would 
uh, lead God's people. He would be the one that would intercede for God's people. He'd be the one in the, in the robe, and the ephod, to spiritually lead God's people. And then why, basically, are you choosing to compromise? Why are you not leading pe- the people rightly? Why are you choosing to serve yourself rather than serve God? There are three great enemies the Bible teaches us that are at work against us as believers. The world, the devil, and our sinful flesh. Okay, The world, the devil, and our sinful flesh. They're all out for your destruction. We're not going to tackle all of them today. What we're going to talk about today is our flesh. Okay, We're going to talk about the sin that exists within us. It is so easy. We talked about this on Wednesday night last week. It is so easy for us at church to talk about the sins of those that aren't here. Okay, To talk about the sin that is out there in the world. And it, we, we are rightfully called to declare what is right and wrong. We have a responsibility to preach and teach the Bible to say, this is sin, this is right, this is good, this is evil. But it is so much easier to preach against the sins that aren't as rampant within our own hearts, right? How easy for it is it for us to turn on the television and see some kind of act of immorality or sinfulness that we're not currently guilty of, and for us to get so worked up emotionally and so black and white to us, that's evil and that's wrong, yet the pride and desires and greed of our own hearts, um, we have a hard, much harder time pointing that out. The sins of our flesh, that, that means the propensity in our actions, but not just our actions, in our thoughts and our desires to reject God and serve ourselves. Now, I know we're all here on a cold Sunday morning. None of us would ever reject God and serve ourselves, right? No, we, we do that pretty regularly, okay? Rejecting God and serving ourselves. We're going to walk through this passage, and I want to show you some of the lies that compromise tells us. Some of the lies that the the, the temptation of compromise will tell you. And when we fall through and believe these things, we find ourselves doing things that we never thought we would be guilty of. This morning is about how to live in the kingdom of God as sinners. And the bad news and the good news is we're, we're all sinners, right? And we'll see it in the worst way in our passage this morning. And my hope is to tell us the lies and then give us a prayer to combat those lies, okay? Uh, let's start back at verse number 12, and let's work through it. Verse 12, we get introduced in verse 12. Eli's sons were sons of Belial. They were wicked men. They do not respect the Lord or the priest's share of the sacrifices that came from the people. See, we see Eli's sons were also priests. Evidently, this, this priestly responsibility was running in the family. They weren't the high priest, okay? They weren't the, 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 the highest priest like Eli was, but they worked in the tabernacle. They they, they led in the sacrifices. Presumably, one of them were likely to take on his role. At one point, it was expected they would be the high priest. So if anyone in Shiloh, if anyone in the tabernacle was going to respect the Lord, you'd think it would be the sons of the priest, right? You would think it would be the, the future high priest. But the wickedness of these two starts right in the opening sentence where we're introduced to them. They, they don't give us like a buildup and... Oh, we're shocked and surprised how wicked these guys are. Now, the first time their names are mentioned, really, we see, hey, these are wicked men. These are men who serve after themselves. And ultimately, we're going to see that the the wickedness of these two men are not just going to cost them their own lives. It's going to cost many other Israelites their lives as well. And I think it all started with a basic disrespect of the Lord, a disrespect of the Lord himself. They, They knew the Lord or they knew of the Lord, it's probably a better term. They grew up in a priest's house. They probably had lots of scripture memorized, right? They knew of the Lord, 
they probably knew about the Lord more than anybody else in Shiloh. They knew a lot of facts. If you took a Bible trivia game, they'd probably win, right? These guys knew a lot about the Lord. They knew that Leviticus chapter 7 said that when every family came to sacrifice an animal to atone for their sins, that there was a portion of the meat that would be cooked afterwards that would be given to the priest. They understood that. They knew that that's how the, the Old Testament, that, that's how it worked, right? That they were so busy sacrificing and helping people and leading in worship that God had sectioned off this portion. Basically, it was a, a breast and a thigh that would be given to the priest from the sacrifice. Basically, you're so busy, you're not cooking for yourself. This is, this is something the Lord has provisioned for you. They understood that. They knew because they had eaten that meal probably every day for the entirety of their lives. Oh, here comes another breast and thigh. Here comes a pigeon. Here comes a cat. Like they, they just understood this is what was coming to them. For years, Eli had said, come, here's dinner, right? And it's the same thing over and over and over again, right? The, the Goldbergs came and sacrificed today. So here's the, here's the dinner that's available for us. We got a great meal tonight, right? They knew all about what was supposed to take place. They knew about the Lord, but they didn't respect the Lord. And that's a big distinction. That's the distinction between knowing about God and bowing your knee in respect and worship of who he is. There's a difference between knowing about him and following him. And we'll see that difference makes all the difference in the lives of these two guys. So the first lie, okay, the first lie of compromise is this. God is not in charge of you. God is not in charge of you. Everything that happens in this passage comes from a place of disrespect towards God. And that form of disrespect, the form of that lie sounds different in different environments. For many of us who are here gathered together in worship, many of you, would, would, it would be shocking for you to make that statement, that God is not in charge of me. But for many of us, we live as if God is not in charge of us. We may not say it out loud, but many of us live with that kind of reality. Many of us say, yeah, that's right. We need to respect the Lord. We need to respect God. We need to respect uh, Jesus. That's absolutely right. There's a form of lip service we can give, right? It's almost like we have uh, a picture of God on our mantle right next to grandpa, right? And don't talk bad about grandpa. Don't talk bad about God, right? I'll, those are fighting words, right? I, I respect them. But in the way that we actually live, do we respect him? Do we respect the Lord as in we tip our cap to him? But when it actually comes down to our lives, we're in charge. There's a lot of us that say, yeah, I respect the Lord. I, I worship the Lord. I'm thankful for the Lord, but, but I'm going to do me. And I, I'm going to be the one who calls the shots. That God is some kind of abstract deity, not an actual authority that's engaged in the day-to-day -day reality of my life. He's this abstract one that I follow, not someone that I actually submit my desires to. Yeah, I'm going to come and I'm going to worship, and I'm going to say God is God and that's good, but I'm, I'm going to do me. I'm going to follow what I want to do. I'm going to follow my pursuits and my passions. This is a seed from which a lot of bad fruit grows of I'm going to call the shots. There's a really interesting, kind of fascinating way that sin works, that we can believe God is real. We can believe that he is the creator. We can believe and we can sing songs that God is this morning on the throne in heaven but walk out and I'm still the authority over my life. There's an interesting reality for us as Christians and for us who say people that know a lot about God, that yes, he is worthy and yes, God is awesome and yes, God created us and yes, God gave himself for us and I, I tip my hat to all that God has done, 
but I'm going to call the shots, and I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do, and I'm, I'm going to be the one who's got the authority over my life. That is sin corrupting our thoughts. We don't, I don't call the shots. God calls the shots. I'm not the one leading and directing. God is the one who's leading and directing. They didn't respect God. They didn't respect the word of God. They knew Leviticus 7, but at the end of the day, they didn't care. Their desires, listen, their desires were a greater source of power and authority in their lives than God's word was. What they wanted, what they desired, that was the strength. And just think for a moment that statement, their desires were more powerful than God's word in their lives. How absurdly arrogant is that for them to, to hold to and for us to hold to? That my desires hold greater power in my life than God's word does. So I would never say that out loud. We might not, but we do it all the time. All the time. Right? God says in his word, you know, not, not to be unequally yoked in marriage, right? But yet here I am as a believer dating someone who now has no interest in, in Christ. And God says that the debtor is a slave to the lender, and yet we are just continually racking up more and more and more and more of that to try and impress people that we don't like. God says if a man looks at a woman lustfully, he's committed adultery in her heart, yet we continue to do that on a daily basis. So who's in charge? We say that God's in charge, but in reality, my desires are more important. My desires have more power in my life than God's word does. And that's a lie of compromise. God's not in charge. I'm in charge. I know God says this, but I'm going to do that. And I, we could go on a much longer list and make us all uncomfortable, right? But we're not going to do that. I'm telling you that, that sin's lie, compromises lie, is at the end of the day, you are in charge, not him. And I promise you, I, I'm not trying to beat us down. My hope is that this morning we can get into the root of some of the infections in our lives. And sometimes we, we spend so much time putting the attention on the, the, the sins that it eventually make their way out of our hearts and out of our minds, out of our mouths. And we ask ourselves, where did that come from, right? Why did I do this? Why am I guilty of saying that? Where, where did that come from? I think for a lot of us, this might be one of those root core beliefs that we've just got shifted. And once that seed grows up, the fruit is, is spoiled. So my hope is that we can get into the heart of it and see that many of us are believing a lie and see that the compromise in our life teaches us that we believe that God is not truly on the throne of our lives that I am. It dethrones God and enthrones me. And sometimes we might not say it aloud, but we really do believe we know better than him. I, I know he says I shouldn't live this way, but I, I, I think I'm the exception to this. I know that he says that this is important, but I, I, my gut really tells me that I feel like this is actually the way that I'm supposed to live. The truth is this, and I will say it as kindly as I can. You are a terrible God. I am a terrible God. That's what sin and compromise doesn't tell you, right? That if you were calling the shots, and when you are calling the shots, you do a really bad job calling the shots. That's what compromise doesn't tell us. Sin, sin's going to keep that truth and reality hidden and then laugh at you when your life self-destructs because you're following your own path rather than his. So let's keep going. Okay, uh, let's, uh, verse number 13. It was priest custom that when people came that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was still in seething or in boiling with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand. Okay, this is gross, right? You want a cooking class. Um, basically, what would happen is they'd come in, they'd send their lackey with a meat fork uh, to go to those who are sacrificing, bring up everything they could find. Oh, kind of in your mind, like a 
almost like a pitchfork-looking thing. They'd stick into this pot, bring out whatever came out, and they would say, that's what we get to keep. That's the same verse 14. They plunge it into the container, the kettle, the cauldron, and they would claim for himself whatever that fork brought up. Like, look what the Lord has provided as I took it out of the pot, right? Well, God is good. Amen, right? I get actually more meat than I thought I was going to get. Now, there was a rule that before any of that could be taken, the fat all had to be boiled off. But the lackey, this, this servant of these two uh, priests, would, anytime there would be an ejection, like, hey, shouldn't you let that boil off first? Shouldn't you let the fat boil off first? Um, if you're not aware of this with meat, fat is good, right? Like, um, they're saying we want the fat to stay on, right? We want to be able to enjoy that fat. But the path of Leviticus tells them they're supposed to burn that off. And so if you'd speak up and say, hey, you're not supposed to take it yet, look what they would say. Verse number 16. If any man said unto him, don't forget to burn the fat before, presently, and then take as much as thy soul desires, then he would answer him and say, no, you'll give it to me now, and if not, I'm going to take it from you. In other words, these are people who are coming to the tabernacle who know the word and know that this isn't the way the priests are supposed to be behaving. This isn't the way these guys are supposed to be talking. This isn't the way they're, they're in it for themselves. And they're saying, hey, don't you have to boil it first? Don't you have to get rid of that, that fat first? And he says, when they say that, tell them, you're either giving it to me now or you're going to be on the meat fork, right? I'm gonna, you're going to take it by force. Verse 17, wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, and the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. This is the kind of disrespect you'd expect from from Philistines, from those who are opposed to Israel, from God's enemies. Those are the kind of people who'd be acting like this, speaking like this, behaving like this. Those are the people you'd expect this from, not from the, the house of God, not from the, the priests. You know, Shakespeare would say there's something rotten in the state of Shiloh, right? Like um, there's something broken here. There's a fungus among us. It might be a more modern way of saying that, right? They treated the offering with contempt, meaning they felt that this offering was beneath them. This offering, this worship that these people were pouring out before the Lord, to them it was worthless. They're arrogant. This is arrogance of the highest order, right? The, 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 the offering the Lord, like, this meat isn't even good. Well, it was given to the Lord, right? It wasn't even given to you. They're, 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 they're treating it like a buffet. And then look at this progression. The sin that started between them and the Lord ultimately spilled out into a gross abuse of power before the people of Israel. Because listen to me, compromise might start in the heart, but it never stays in the heart. It might start internally. It might start just between you and, and God, but it never stays there. It always works its way out into your attitudes. It always works its way out into your actions. And other people will always be affected by your compromise. So first lie is that God's not God, I'm, I am. God's not in charge, I am. Second lie, you deserve more, go get it. You deserve more, go get it. Here's what I want to promise you. Compromise's appetite, sin's appetite, is never going to be satisfied. It's never going to get to a point you're like, you know what, that's enough. <laughs> I've enjoyed this to the degree that I have. I, you know, I, I'm satisfied with it. These gluttons use their position of spiritual authority to satisfy the appetites of their flesh. And I want to just take a quick aside here, pastoral aside for our church, okay? This, if that's not spiritual abuse, there is no such thing as spiritual abuse, okay? And this is a warning to churches. This is a warning to church leaders. Because a lot of spiritual abuse that takes place in church environments comes from believing this same lie, this same deceit, 
where a pastor or a church leader will feel entitled to more of something than what God has given them, more power, more control, more fame, more success, more money. And what they will do is they will manipulate situations to try and gain more of whatever it is they feel like they're lacking. And this is sobering to us because there's stories all across this room this morning of those of us who have seen and experienced this kind of spiritual abuse in worship, in places of worship, in churches. And I can tell my own stories of experiencing and seeing these things where people in places of authority have used their opportunity and their position to satisfy their own lust and the destruction that comes and families that are torn apart and churches that are torn apart. So I want to say that with two ways, okay? First, if you're here and you've experienced some kind of church hurt in these scenarios like like I have, like many of us have, I'll tell you two things. First, this isn't the perfect church, okay? And I know a lot of you feel like it is. It's not, okay? Um, give us a little bit more time, okay? New Hope is not a perfect church. A perfect church will not exist this side of heaven, okay? There is no perfect church. You are sitting surrounded by sinners. Don't look around, okay? Because you are one too, right? <laughs> you are sitting looking at this morning and listening to a sinner, and if you stay around long enough, you will see it, okay? And you'll experience it. We are sinners leading sinners under the mercy of God. That's what we sing that song, praise the Lord, his mercy is more. That means something to us because we're guilty of some stuff, right? So first of all, this isn't a perfect church. Secondly, I believe that it is in your, I'm gonna say this the right way because it can sound super self-serving. I don't mean it that way. It is in your personal spiritual self-interest to pray for the protection and the purity of the spiritual leaders of your church, okay? Because this destruction doesn't just take place in their families, it goes beyond. And many of us can testify of the destruction that takes place when someone who is supposed to be something, who is supposed to lead in a certain way, was actually beginning to satisfy his own needs and his own gratification and the destruction that comes from it. So we boldly, I don't, I'm not shy about it, we, we ask for you to pray uh, for the leaders of our church because this is a destructive Terrible thing that could take place in worship congregations. Then lastly, I said two, I mean three. Um, if you've been through something that, where you've been hurt, God is a God of justice, and we'll see that in this passage. It is not our job. We don't have to execute it, but God will take care of it. He makes all things right. He will restore that which is broken. And our hope is that your time here at our church will be a time of healing, as it has been for a lot of us. Um, but trust in his plan. Move forward in your life. Trust that God is going to take care of it and, and trust in him. Commercial over. Okay, but I just couldn't pass that without acknowledging that, that this takes place today in a lot of different areas as well. Um, with that said, this isn't a lie that only pastors believe. This isn't a lie that only church leaders believe. This is a lie that you can believe too. That I deserve more, so I'm going to go get it. That we deserve more than what God has given to us. A little bit more money, a little bit more success, a little bit more power. What is this at its core? Its core is greed, Right? I need more. I deserve more. Look at how hard I work. Look how diligent I am. Look how lazy that person is, right? I deserve more. So I'm going to go get it. After all, God helps those who help themselves, right? We say that like it's in the Bible somewhere. If it's spoiler alert, folks, it ain't in there, right? That, that's, a, that's not a concept that is anything close to Scripture. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps the helpless. God helps the weak. 
God helps those who are surrendered to him. God helps the powerless. God doesn't help those who helps themselves. I don't know what kind of self-help theology garbage camp that came from. That's not true. God helps those who need him. And this might hurt, but I want to say it again in love. Not only do you not deserve more than you have, but Christian, you deserve far less than you have. I deserve more. I need to have more. Not only do you not deserve more, if we want to talk about fairness with God, we don't want to, we don't want to enter that conversation, okay? We, we know what we justly deserve. We know what we fairly deserve. Everything you have in your life that is good, what does James tell us? Every good and perfect gift that we have is a gift from above. Everything that I have isn't anything that I've earned. It's all from him. So instead of snubbing my nose at my limited amount of gifts, Maybe take inventory of all that God has given a messed up and broken sinner like me and like you. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes, but we're so tempted. God, I deserve more. I should have this. I, I deserve to have a good job. I deserve to have this set up. I deserve for my family to be. What I deserve as a sinner is I deserve damnation and eternal separation from God, okay? Anything on top of that, we call it grace. These are gifts from the Lord. So I look around at my family, and yes, maybe in your family there's drama, but look around those individuals. Those are gifts to you from the Lord. And you live in a house where you were reasonably warm when you woke up this morning, right? So we got heat of blankets on top of heat of blankets on top of like footy pajamas, whatever you had to do to stay warm last night. Uh, I'm not, I don't wear footy pajamas. But if, I, I would, if you want to give them, I'll wear I don't know. I'm just kidding. Um, but you stayed warm, right? But I look around. It's all a gift, right? You got heat on, food that's coming in the afternoon, an opportunity to sit around and watch my Detroit Lions win a playoff game again for the second time in 33 years. It's a good day, right? You can celebrate these moments and realize, I, stop looking at what I deserve extra and be thankful that I've already received that I didn't deserve. The lie of compromise. Oh, I just need to cut this corner and get a few more hours at work and cut this corner and compromise my integrity so I can have a little bit more money and I can compromise the truth in this area to sort of make it a little bit easier in this relationship. No, 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 no. I do what's right, understanding God takes care of the details of my life. Everything he gives to me is a gift. I don't deserve more. Verse 18, look at this contrast. Verse 18. But Samuel, I love this, the contrast between Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, or sorry, and, and uh, Samuel. But Samuel, verse 18, ministered before the Lord, being a child, girded about with a linen ephod, and his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him every year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice, and Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife. Eli is this interesting character, okay? He seems like an incredibly comforting, gracious priest to those who are genuine in their worship of the Lord. He, he treats Hannah with incredible kindness. He prays for her. He ministers to her. He's, he's kind to her. He's encouraging to her. It's, it's a really interesting contrast between how he treats Hannah and how he treats his own house, right? How active he is with those of those who are, are purely serving or trying to serve the Lord versus those who are opposed to him. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But he's ministering to Hannah. He blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, the Lord give thee Seed of this woman for the Lord, which is lit, sent to the Lord. Basically, hey, since you gave Samuel, God, I'm praying these people have more kids. Bless them. Since the one they blessed us with, bless them with more. Verse 21, the Lord did. Bear three sons and two daughters. And the child Samuel grew before the Lord. A little commercial, good opportunity for us to learn this. You cannot outgive the Lord, okay? You cannot outgive God. God matches generosity with generosity. That's not prosperity theology. 
Let's not give five bucks so you can get rich. Okay, that's the reality of the kingdom of God. That as we're generous and in investing my life and my resources, my, my energy into the kingdom, God shovels right back to us energy, resources, blessings. His generosity is returned. We see her sowing this child and reaping five more. So the generosity of God. The Lord offers this little commercial. This is a sad story. The whole thing is sad. Hophni, Phineas, Eli, it's all sad. But the Lord offers this little light in the darkness. And that's what Samuel's already been. As a child, he's already this. I love verse number 12. Tells us he's a, sorry, verse 18 says a, it's a boy. Like This is a child, and he's already the light in this situation. Though a child, Samuel's already wearing an ephod. He's wearing the clothing of a priest, already showing us that God is planning a successor for Eli. And it's not Hophni and Phinehas. It will be Samuel. Hannah and Elkanah go up every year, just like they did before. We saw that last week, to worship before the Lord, to sacrifice before the Lord. Hannah would be working the year before, sewing and putting together a little outfit and garment for her son. She'd give it to him when she'd travel up there, seeing how he's grown and how he can, what a good mom Hannah is as she's pouring into the life of, of Samuel. Each year, Eli would speak a prayer over them. May the Lord give you children in place of the one you've given to the Lord. And just like that, the Lord gave Hannah five more kids. Verse 22. Now, Eli was very old. I don't think that's very kind, right? <laughs> but very old, not just old. He's very old. And heard all that his sons were doing in Israel. Now look at this, verse 22. How they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So now it's gone beyond, we're, we're, we're taking meat from the cauldron. Now they're, they're sleeping with the women who are coming to worship. Right? They're completely defiling and desecrating the, the place of the tabernacle, the, the worship of the children of Israel. And he said unto them, why do you do these things? I hear of your evil dealings by all the people. In other words, everybody knows that you guys are scumbags. Everybody knows that you guys are doing all this stuff you shouldn't be doing. Everybody's talking about it. Why are you doing that? Why are you continuing to do these things? Stop. He says to verse 24, no, my sons, it is not a good report that I'm hearing. That's an that's a understatement, right? You make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, he, he's pointing these guys to where the, the direction of who they're sinning against. You're not just sinning against people. You're sinning against the Lord. Who will entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearken not. They didn't listen unto the voice of their father because the Lord would slay them. There is this constant contrast the author wants us to see Boy wonder Samuel growing up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, growing up in favor with God and with the people. People love Samuel. He's pure in heart. He's, he's serving in the tabernacle. The Lord, people can see the Lord's hand is on him. That's evident to people, by the way, when the Lord's hand is on somebody and he grows in favor. This is how Eli's sons should be described. Verse 26, growing in favor, growing in knowledge, growing in stature. By the way, this sounds an awful lot, if you look at verse 26, looks an awful lot like a verse in Luke 2. Verse 26, the child Samuel grew on and was in favor with both the Lord and with men. What, is, what do we get described of Jesus? Luke chapter 2, verse 52, where Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Samuel is this little foretaste, this foreshadow of who Jesus was going to be. The sons of Eli, man, these guys are vile. They're vile. In addition to everything they're doing, they're, they're sleeping with the women that are there to serve God. And this evil, all these actions, Eli tells them, this isn't just sin you're committing against people. 
These are sins you're committing against God himself. And he says, that's not good, okay? That's not good. Because it's one thing to sin against a person. But when you sin directly against God, Eli poses a really important question. He said, who can intercede for you when you sin against God? I want you to just think on that for a minute. Who can intercede for you when you sin against God? We'll talk more about that at the end, but I want you to just ponder that as we work our way through it, okay? Third lie, third lie. We see them unmoved in response to Eli's hearkening. What do we see in our third lie? The third lie is that you should only listen to godly counsel when it agrees with you. Only listen to godly counsel when it agrees with you. They rejected their father's warning. This is someone that loved them. This is someone that, that was their, in their world, not just a father, but a spiritual father, and they didn't listen. And when sin and compromise has its grip on you, we will do the same thing. We get blinded. How many of us, the, we've been in situations where we know we're doing something we shouldn't be doing, and the people that we used to listen to, we don't listen to anymore. The people that we used to trust, my friend who goes to church with me and sits there and you know, texts me if I'm reading my Bible, I'm not replying to that text right now, right? Uh, I'm not really listening to those same people anymore. I'm not listening to that godly counsel anymore. People trying to warn you, hey, I don't know that this is a good path you're going down right now. And I, I don't know that that's going to result in the, in the best flourishing for you, for your family, for your relationships. They're warning you. And what do we say? Ah, they don't understand what's going on. They don't know me. They don't know what I'm doing. Why are they hurting me? Why would those people who've loved you the entire time try to hurt you now? So many of us would be spared a whole lot of pain if we would listen to some good friends and godly rebuke. So what I want to tell you is get yourself a sin-sparring partner. Here's what I mean. You need some people in your life that can punch you in the face with the Bible and say, you're doing something stupid, right? Like you're, you're ignoring a whole lot of people to do what you want to do. And when we're compromising, we're ignoring a whole lot of people that we used to listen to and trust because now their counsel, their advice, their, 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 their words no longer agree with what I want, with what I want to do. So guess what I do? I'm going to go find some new sparring partners. How many of you guys have ever been in a situation where you know if I call this person, they're going to tell me something I don't want to hear, so I'm not calling them, right? I'm going to call someone that's going to affirm what I think. Uh, I'm not going to call someone that's going to challenge what I think. I'm going to call someone that's going to just affirm everything that I think. Yeah, you're totally right. He's the worst, right? We all have friends like that, right? And sometimes that's a good thing within reason, but, um, you know, to, to help you and encourage you. But sometimes we're just looking for people that are going to affirm everything we think, and they're not going to challenge where we're at, not going to challenge us. And you need some people that you look at them and you say, if you see me believing lies of compromise and sin and evil, you have the right to punch me in the face with the Bible, right? Tell me what I'm doing. And you need to commit ahead of time that when that person you trust and you love comes to you and says, I don't think this is good, and I think this is dangerous, and I think you need to be careful, I'm going to pre-decide in that moment, I'm going to listen, okay? I'm going to listen, I'm going to be careful. What happens next is there's a pronouncement of judgment on Eli's house. Interestingly, a prophet comes to Eli. So a priest is now hearing from a prophet because the priest isn't listening to God himself. And he says, God, I, I chose you. I chose the, the children of Levi to be my priest. And yet, verse 29, why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I've commanded in my habitation and honored thy sons above me? That's a really important phrase. You have honored your sons above me 
to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Here's the next lie that compromise tells, that people are more important than God is. And we love people, and you should love people. But people are made in the image of God. They are created beings from a creator. And what do we see Eli doing? The prophet comes and says, you valued, you have placed more emphasis on, you have honored your sons above the Lord. What's that? Harken back to your Ten Commandments memorization skills, right? What's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Eli's done that. His guys just happen to be his two boys. He said, you honored them above me. He put his sons above the Lord. And his tolerance of their behavior, and in his participation of some of it, Eli says that he has made himself fat just like his sons did. And I think the sin of Eli is a sin of conflict-avoidant niceness. And it created a tolerance for sin. Well, it's going to stir up something if I say something. And everybody's getting along right now, so I don't want to cause any conflict, and I don't want to you know, cause any drama, so I'm just not going to say something. I'm just going to let them keep going. I'm going to let them do what they're going to do. And if I put my foot down here, do I, do I really want that fight? Do I really want that battle? Do I really want that argument? Do I really want that conflict? In that moment, what matters to me more, God or people? What matters to me more, the truth of the word or what my friends think? The truth of scripture or the approval of other people that I'm after? Eli's greatest sin, I think, was his niceness. And by the way, in the Bible, you are never commanded to be nice. You're commanded to be kind, not nice. Sometimes our niceness is more about us than it is about other people. I just want to keep everybody happy. And believe me, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir this morning. This is me, okay? I just want to keep everybody happy, keep everybody good, make sure everyone's all on the same team. We're all on board. I don't want to step on anybody's toes too much. We've got to make sure everything's okay. His sin was his niceness. And by the way, his niceness, like we saw, made him a great priest to people who are living God's way. He's so nice to Hannah. She comes in, is praying, and is encouraging to her. He was great as a priest for Hannah. But his niceness made him a great priest for people who are following the Lord and a terrible father for kids who are resisting the Lord. By the way, do we see the contrast in parenting styles between 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 1 Samuel chapter 2? For those of you guys who have kids, going to have kids, see the difference between Elkanah and Hannah, the home there, and Eli's home. And you would think, right, the priest's home would have been the one that they should be following after, but it's not. Hannah and Elkanah and Eli's home. Hannah surrenders her child to the Lord, because what Job tells in Job chapter 1, as the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, right? This is the Lord's. Hannah says, my kids are yours, my home is yours, I am yours. Like Joshua 24, it's for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord Eli doesn't give his kids back to the Lord. He puts his kids above the Lord. So these are the ones that I'm committing myself to. And the longevity of that decision is where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 2. He didn't teach them how to bully and take advantage of women at the tabernacle. That was not in, in Eli's parenting curriculum. I don't think Eli sat down and said, okay, when women come, this is how you take advantage of them at the tabernacle. I don't think that's what took place. I don't think he was teaching them those things. What he did teach them is that they were more important than God was. That they could do whatever they wanted to do. That they were more honored than the Lord. 
and then our sin nature just does the rest. You, you get that truth in your heart that you can do whatever you want to do and you're more important, man, sin, your heart, that'll take you the rest of the way. Eli's niceness made him a comforting priest and a terrible father. And ultimately, we see in this passage, the prophet comes and says, you're not, oh, not only your son's responsible, but you're also responsible for the sins of your sons. And the applications of that are, are, go far beyond parenting. God never called us just to pure niceness. He calls us to kindness. Can I tell you, parents, don't just be nice to your kids. Be kind to your kids. And being kind to your kids means lovingly rebuking their sin, cultivating their character, developing their hearts. Oh, I can't do that. They're, they're my precious. Oh, I love my kids. I, I think more than you love your kids. I'm just kidding. Uh, we all love our kids, right? We all treasure our children, but it's not just niceness that they need. It's not passivity that they need. They need an engaged mother and father who are going to be ultimately kind to them by helping to resist within them the, the heart of sin and the flesh and the call of the evil one to pull them their own direction. And I'm going to be bold and direct and rebuking of the hearts that are broken and sinful. So that's not what we're going to do. That's not what's good for you. That's not what's going to bless you. We get it with diet. We do, right? No, you can't have gummy worms for three meals a day, right? We get it. Well, I want to be nice to my kids. No, we all, nobody does that. If you do, we can talk more about that, and I'll refer to you to my dentist after we're done, right? Like, no, we, we, we get it with health, but for some reason with, with things like this and with worship and the things of the Lord, we, we, we back off. No, God calls us to be direct. The kindest thing you can do for your family is to honor the Lord above them in your actions, in your deeds, not just in your words. The worst thing you can do is honor the Lord with your words and not your actions, right? Well, the man of God goes on to condemn Eli's house. This place is a mess. Your house forever. He says, your line will suffer violent death forever. There will not be an old man in your family ever. Pretty intense punishment for the sins they've committed. But I love the hope of the Lord continuing in verse number 35. In contrast to Eli, he says, I will raise me up a faithful priest. This is the, the theme verse we learned last week. I will raise me up a faithful priest who will do according to that which is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. That promise is a prophecy that will ultimately be fulfilled in Samuel, then by a priest named Zadok, and then ultimately by the great priest, our great high priest, Jesus Christ, God's anointed Messiah who will be our great high priest, who will intercede for us in our sins against the Lord. You say, Andrew, this is good and depressing. What do I do with it? Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you got it, to Mark, Matthew, excuse me, chapter 6. I want to give us a very familiar passage of Scripture, and what I believe is one of the great tools we're given in Scripture to resist and fight against the lies of compromise. So we'll call it praying, I don't remember what I called it in the outline, praying against compromise, praying, attacking compromise, that's better, Combat, compromise with prayer, okay? Combat, compromise with prayer. Let's go, Matthew chapter 6. I think these words are probably familiar to most of us, if not all of us, but my hope is that as we remember the lies we just learned about, I think the truth of this prayer will strike a little bit deeper, knowing that sin and the world and the devil come, come at the disciples of Jesus constantly. Jesus gives his disciples this prayer to pray to combat this evil. We, of course, know it today as the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's stop there. The lie of compromise says you are in charge. 
Jesus says, pray not my will, but yours be done. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sin says, I am in charge, I call the shots. The Lord's prayer says, you are in charge, you call the shots, you are God, I am not. You are in control, I follow you. Not my name be holy, your name be holy. Not my reputation be important, your reputation be important. In that prayer, I am rejecting sin's lie and compromise's lie that I am in charge. I want to say that God in my home, in my work, in my family, in my church, in my social life, in my relationships, it's yours. You be glorified. Your name be hallowed. Reject the lie of the evil one that you're in charge. Say, God, that you're in charge. I'm not calling the shots. God, you're calling the shots. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. I'm going to reject the lie of compromise that says, I deserve more by praying. Father, give us today our daily bread. Sin tells me, compromise tells me you deserve more. You should have more. I'm entitled to go get what I deserve. I'm entitled to go get what I need. But I'm fighting that lie with the truth that, God, you supply me with what I need every single day. Give us today my daily bread. Just as you took care of your people wandering in the wilderness with the daily supply of manna and quail, I'm choosing that you're going to take care of me as your child today. Give me today your daily bread. I'm choosing today to believe that you have given me everything I need to have a joyful life. How would your life change? How would your prayer life change if you really believe that? That God has given you everything you need to live a joyful and satisfied life. That's the truth of Scripture, but the lie of compromise tells us you need a little bit more. If you had one more bedroom, or a little more closet space, ladies, or those nice granite countertops, right? Or, or a new car, or the boat, or the extra couple of weeks of vacation, then, then I could live that joyful, happy life. No, 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 give us today our daily bread. Give me what I need today. In Christ, I have you. And that's all I really need. And I recognize that everything I already have, you've given me. And God, I want to work hard. And I, I want to be diligent. I want to work hard for your glory. But as I do, I want to remember that everything that I get, you are the giver of it. And I want to find contentment and peace and satisfaction in what you've given me. No, 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 no. You deserve more. Go get that. That's a lie of the evil one. God, give me today what I need. And I trust that you will provide. Forgive us our sins, our transgressions, we forgive those who transgress against us. That's the great prayer of confession. What is that basically saying? Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I encourage you to get specific with the Lord in that prayer. Maybe not with uh, you know, public prayer time at church, but maybe in your own private prayer time with the Lord to get specific. Forgive me my debts. What are your debts? Forgive me my sins. What are my sins? Sometimes it's easy to pray general prayers. Yeah, I know I'm a sinner. <laughs> Everybody is, right? Forgive me of those sins, Lord. But to get specific, I sinned here and there. And this is what I did when I said that. That was wrong. That, that grieved you, and I know that. I confess that to you, Lord. Would you forgive me of those things? This is so important, friends. If you don't regularly repent of your sin, you will eventually, just like Hophni and Phinehas, you will harden your heart. If we continue to resist repentance, sin does that. You must regularly come to the Lord. You say, well, isn't, aren't my sins already forgiven? Yeah, your sins are already forgiven. Jesus paid for your sins. Still, we get the principle of confession in Scripture that we bring these things to the Lord, that we're agreeing with him about the things that we've done. Yeah, God, I, I know that you've already forgiven me. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. But Father, I acknowledge I shouldn't have done that. That that was wrong. You cannot go forward consistently growing as a Christian 
with piles of unconfessed and unrepentant and secret sin festering in your heart and your life. It's not going to work. You're not going to grow. You're not going to develop. Your heart's going to get hard. And listen, yes, we are all sinners. The question is, are we also going to be all repenters? We are all sinners. The question is, are we all going to be confessors? Okay, let's move beyond that. First John 1, 8, we say we have no sin. We're lying to ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some of us have seen sin's lies today. My hope, we've seen them. And today, maybe as we go home this afternoon, we have some time to confess and to repent. God, I, I've believed that you owe me more than I have. I believed that you're not ultimately in charge or have acted like I'm in charge and I need to confess that. And I can receive the forgiveness of God. By the way, that's the only thing we really stand on as Christians, not your merit. Okay, you don't get a sticker on the chart for being at church today when it's cold. We don't stand on our merit. We don't stand on our behavior. We stand on the forgiveness of Jesus. That's the standing we have. We're sinners, but we've received the mercy of God. Receive it. Confess your sin. Maybe your next step is a relational confession. To confess your sin to someone that you've sinned against. If you're married, you have something to confess. Promise. You said something past week, two weeks, three weeks. You did something, you said something. We all have something, right, that we've fallen short in. Hey, the, I reacted that way, and I shouldn't have said that. You know, and I, I was short with you. I, I didn't talk to you for 10 minutes, and the guy doesn't even realize. You see, I don't know if you've seen that, where it's like the woman sitting over there giving the husband the silent treatment, and she's thinking that he's just so bothered over there. And the guy, like, puts up a little caption of, like, I've had the best day ever. Like, it was just so calm, no drama. Uh, it's always kind of funny. Like, I don't even know you're mad at me, but you confess it and get it fixed, but... Um, it might be that. It might be a relational confession. It might be conversations to have between yourselves where you're going to be forgiven as we've been forgiven by Christ. Ask God for the spirit of humility to do that. And then lastly, do not, verse 13 of chapter 11, don't bring us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus calling out the things against us. God, my sinful flesh is tempted and my enemy knows it is. And Satan's going to use that flesh against me, so God, deliver me from my temptations. Deliver me from this brokenness. Protect me from my sinful heart and from my desires that wants to compromise, that doesn't want to live with conviction, that wants to believe these lies. We've talked about this morning. God, would you protect me, not in my strength, but in your strength. Give me victory over this compromise that competes for the throne that you deserve in my life. I want to invite you to bow with me for a prayer, and we'll, we'll give these things to the Lord. Father, we thank you for this passage.